This is Reaching the Finish Line. And I'm your host, Callan Dix. Check out the website, www.reachingthefinishline.com. And pick up my free report. Save up to 75% what they don't want you to know. Reachingthefinishline.com. And welcome. Today, I am delighted to have Peter Tucci. Peter is a former professional baseball player. Uh, he, he was active with the San Diego Padres and the Toronto Blue Jays from 1996 to 2002. Uh, during spring training of 99, he suffered a unique fracture in his left hand from swinging, one that severed his tendons and unfortunately proved to be irreparable even with surgery, thus ending his professional career. However, uh, Tucci believes that the part of the blame for the hand injury that further destroyed his dream of playing in the MLB lies with the baseball bat he was using at that time. You know, and now and now uh, uh, he's on the path to creating the first product, uh, Tucci Limited. So I'm very happy to talk about him. How he kind of used this unfortunate adversity to his advantage to ultimately still reach his finish line. Peter, welcome. Callan, how you doing today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. You're actually the first uh, MLB player uh, on the show, so uh, congrats to that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Let's go back in time, Peter. You know, how did you get? You know, you know, how did you get started? You know, how was the foundation like? Because oftentimes on the show we do talk about, you know, I talk about a lot of people who come from uh, disprivileged uh, childhoods. Uh, other people come from kind of well-to-do, and you know, fortunately, uh, it kind of has a, a, a plays a factor on how, you know, you know, successful entrepreneurs like yourself develop. So let's go back in time. You know, was your mother and father uh, in your life? You know, let's talk about that. Uh, they were. You know, I grew up, you know, very middle class, uh, you know, family. Uh, you know, mother and father together had two, two sisters um, and grew up with a very traditional American childhood. Mm. I see. And uh, so, and, and, and that's kind of typical. Um and from the day you graduated from high school, you know, was, you know, was your, was, was college something you wanted to do or was it forced upon by your parents? College was forced upon, I wouldn't say forced upon by my parents, but forced upon by what I wanted to do in life as far as baseball at the time. Mm. Um, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, wasn't drafted out of high school. It wasn't you know, thought of that highly at the time, um, you know, but it was getting recruited by colleges to go play at the college level. Um, and had it not been, been for baseball, quite honestly, I probably wouldn't have went to college. I would have been more of the type to enter the workforce at a high school. And, and you know, at the time uh, in my life, school was not my strong suit. You know, I tried hard. I wasn't I wasn't a kid who didn't, uh, you know, didn't try, but I, I did what I had to do and got the grades I needed to get in order to play, uh, you know, the sports that I, that I loved and, and ended up, uh, you know, going to college to play baseball. Um, but it was definitely a struggle for me, uh, you know, academically, um, you know, so, so because of baseball is, is how I, why I say I feel forced that, you know, that I went to college, but, um, you know, my goal at the time was still to play professionally and I had the opportunity to play in college and that's, that's uh, you know ultimately what ended up happening. 
For sure. I mean, you're definitely not alone. You know, a lot of people do not kind of like the necessarily like the traditional way of learning kind of you, you go to class you, you know you, you you sit among who knows anywhere between 40 to uh, 60 students with a lecturer it was kind of often sounds kind of like Ben Stein very boring and uh, it's kind of hard you know I mean you know, a lot of times people uh, prefer other uh, models of learning you know some people learn visually other people learn auditorially some people learn with their hands they're more kinesthetic people and uh, you know I you know Stories like yours is, is definitely, uh, you know, common uh, when it comes to a lot of people uh, learning. What did you study in university? Um, you know what? I, again, it was uh, I ended up being a social study major at Providence College. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, quite honestly, Callan, it was one of the easier majors to get into. <laughs> and, I see. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't have I didn't have the grade point average to get into many of the other majors that I probably would have enjoyed more or. Mm-hmm you know, probably would have had more of a lucrative kind of end game. But, mm. um, you know, at the time, uh, you know, it was a major I qualified for. It was something that other guys ahead of me, you know, a few years ahead of me on our on our baseball team also majored in, probably mm. for the same exact reasons that I just mentioned. Mm. And uh, so because of, familiar, you know, being, being slightly familiar with it through them, um, kind of chose that path, you know, had the aspirations of playing professional baseball you know, as a five or six year old and kind of never lost that, that drive for it as they got older, it only increased. So, um, and, and was lucky and fortunate enough to kind of see those dreams come true, yeah. which, you know, I'm sure a lot of five and six year olds, you know, and out there, you know, have the aspirations of doing it and most aren't, you know, uh, fortunate enough for, you know, for that to come to fruition. But, um, fortunately for me, uh, you know, kind of, kind of went that way. Ultimately didn't, go exactly the way I'd hoped, you know, I was hoping to have this long, you know, lustrous career in Major League Baseball that really didn't turn out the way I planned, but hmm. um, at least I had the opportunity that, that you know, most aren't oh, for of, sure. uh, fortunate to get, so. Absolutely, you know, a lot, a lot of people <laughs> will love to be professional athletes, you know, whether it's the MLB, the NBA, the NFL, and yeah, I mean, you know, the, despite, despite perhaps you didn't have an extremely long career, uh, just, just the honor, just the pleasure to be able to participate in such a high level of sports is definitely, uh, uh, is definitely commendable. Uh, when you was, when you was, uh, you know, to kind of go into Providence College, you said you was playing baseball there. Uh, what division is Providence College? Is it like D3, D1? Or? Uh, they are D1. Yeah. Okay. They're Division 1. You know, it's Northeast, so, uh, you know, it's not a school generally thought of as, you know, being like this big powerhouse baseball school mm. um, because just geographically where it's located in the country. But, uh, you know, we're in the Big East Conference and uh, and it was really good baseball, you know, and, and at Providence, we were one of the winningest programs um, over a 20 year span at Providence College. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, and, you know, I left there in 1996, but in 1998, the college decided to end the baseball program. Uh, due to, you know, they needed to cut um, male sports due to the Title IX, um, you know, criteria that, um, you know, your student body basically needs to reflect the same percentage of male to female athletes in the school. And so they had to either add a lot of female athletes, you know, in sports, or um, the cheaper way to go would be to, to, um, you know, basically eliminate some of the male athletes and, one of the ways they did it, even though we were a very successful program at Providence, was, you know, baseball didn't bring money into the school. It was fully funded by the school, you know, so they gave scholarships and all that. But uh-huh. it was it didn't bring money in the way, say, basketball or hockey uh-huh. at that school did. So right. 
uh, it was a very easy decision, I think, for them to say, you know, from a financial standpoint, it doesn't make sense, you know, and, uh, and they ended up eliminating the program. But at the time, we were we were very, uh, very, um, you know, successful program in the school and, and ended up having a few guys, uh, you know, playing in the big leagues, you know, from Providence. So, um, you know, for, for, for what you think of as a real small school in the Northeast, um, you know, as far as baseball goes, it, it, it went a long way. So it was good. And sure, and indeed it did. At what point did you get drafted by the MLB? Was it, uh, was it after you graduated or was it uh, during uh, while you were still studying? So the way it works with baseball, uh, and it's different, I, I believe, in each sport. But with baseball at the time, the rule was um, you had to be, once you entered the NCAA, mm-hmm. you know, and you went to a four-year school, you had to either be 21 years old or wait till after your junior season to be eligible for the draft. Mm. Um, and I was drafted after my junior year uh, in the first round by the Blue Jays mm. and, um, and ended up uh, leaving school and, and signing with the Blue Jays. Wow, very interesting. Start with a free audiobook. Go to reachingthefinishline.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to click on the Audible banner to get your free audiobook. You may not have a lot of free time, but you can definitely listen to a book on a plane, on the bus, or even while you're driving. Go to reachingthefinishline.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to click on the Audible banner to get your free audiobook. Start reaching the finish line with your free audiobook. Let's talk, and this is definitely a, a area that I want to uh, explore. You know, a, a lot of times nowadays, you know, these coaches, they're making, you know, six figures, and, you know, these college teams are raising all this money, and some students feel like they should be entitled to some of that money. You know, as a, as, as a former professional baseball player, and as a person that actually went through these channels to get to the pros, what do you think about that? Um, I believe there's a definite argument to be made there, especially, you know, maybe not for a college baseball player, especially, you know, we were never on TV. We were, ne- you know, Providence was never even bringing money into the school, which is why ultimately they dropped the program, let alone to these TV networks or, or other venues. But when you look at college basketball and college football mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you know, the, the, the money that is being made on, on the names of these student athletes, Mm-hmm. Um, the money that is being awarded to the coaches who are coaching them, which is very well deserved. But um, I do believe there is an argument there for compensation for those athletes. Um, now, you know, royalties are being made on their name. There are, you know, there, there's <laughs> every week viewers are tuning in. There's billions of dollars being made on the names of these players that don't get anything from it. Now, you could say, well, they're going to get, you know, they'll get their share once once they get to the next level, whether it be the NBA or the NFL or, um, you know, but what about the what about the player who maybe got hurt before he got that chance or, or something like that? So mm-hmm. I do think there is an argument there. Um, I can't speak too intelligently on on it, but uh, but I do I do believe there is some room there for discussion and and possibly modifying the way things are done. Um, you know, with college athletes now, you know, whether it be compensating them more, uh, you know, you hear you hear horror stories of, of how some of these players have to just get by and, and eat, let alone, you know, because there's, you know, they have no income coming in and, you know, uh, you know, maybe come from a background where, where financially, 
you know, they never had it. They're, you know, that's great. They're going to school and they're getting education and, you know, they're they're uh, being taken care of that way. But at the same time, there's no money behind that in addition to in addition to the, uh, you know, the scholarship they're receiving. So um, I, I don't know. I definitely think it's an area that needs to be looked at. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, I I would definitely uh, go on to say that you know at least um, you know for stu- you know students you know especially who are playing uh, these college sports, they should at least have maybe uh, a part a portion of their tuition waived, if not all. Uh, you know, at least as a way to uh, at least as a way to compensate. Uh, these students, you know, for participating, because as you say, you know, they, they make royalties off of their name, and you know, there's a lot of money generated. You know, the ticket sales, there's a lot of money generated yep. uh, through these types of uh, college games, and oftentimes, uh, you know, th- th- there are, you know, a very few fortunate. Uh, athletes like yourself who get a chance to go to uh, the professional level, but you know the majority of students do not have that. You know, are, are not gifted with that uh, opportunity, and uh, you know, as you said, as you as you stated, oftentimes a lot of these students, you know, they're not financially stable. You know, they're trying to get by. You know, they're doing these work study programs, even as, or sometimes if they don't qualify for work study, they still have to try to find other ways to you know pay for you know, their housing, their food expenses, things of that matter. So it can definitely be very difficult uh, for many of the college athletes uh, to survive, uh, especially, uh, you know, in, in, in that type of climate. So, uh, you know, very, you know, you know, happy that you was able to speak to that. That's always interesting. From the moment that you went, from the moment you got drafted, you must have been excited because, again, a lot of people play the sport, but they don't. They don't have the opportunity to actually enter that level. Let's talk about what was that like for you. Let's talk about perhaps you know did things start to change? Did your friends look at you differently? Did your friends start expecting you expecting you to buy them cars and houses and you know favors like that? Let's talk about how was that like as you made the transition from collegiate to professional. Um, it was definitely different. You know, it was definitely um, you know I was I was hoping to get drafted and 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 you know was talking with. Uh, who later became my agent, but at the time, you know, is, is an advisor mm. um, and uh, with different scouts that we were in talks with and was anticipating getting drafted fairly high. I didn't I didn't know I was going to go in the first round, um, you know, which eventually I was I was towards the tail end of the first round. Mm. Um, but I thought I'd go somewhere like around the second or third round. But wow. um, and then once once it, it happened and, and it ended up being in the first round and and um you know, it, it's so funny because this was, you know, 96 was the first year that, um, you know, you had some of these guys, you know, like the first pick in the country, uh, mm-hmm. for instance, um, ended up, there was a, uh, like his agent found like a little clause in his, in the initial offer of his contract that voided his initial, his initial um, draft status mm. and made him a free agent. Now he was up for bid. So he ended up signing for $10 million. Wow. Um you know, so you had like these huge numbers being thrown out there. And this was like the first time that like, you know, before that, you know, maybe like a million dollars was about, you know, like a high end of the first round, you know. I see. So so all of a sudden you get like these large numbers being thrown around like $10 million. But there was some kind of clause. There was an issue that happened with his draft status that his agent caught on to. And, and there was this whole kind of hoopla around it. But, you know, now you come to me at the tail end of the first round. And you're right. People do you know, have this, and, you know, they think, okay, well, maybe it's not 10 million, but it's got to be, 
somewhere's kind of close, which mm-hmm. I could tell you was nowhere's close. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a big disparity between beginning of the first round and end of the first round, you know, mm-hmm. as far as signing bonus goes and stuff like that. But, um, but you're right. People do have a different, uh, you know, kind of view on it, but mm-hmm. I can't say that not from my friends, you know, my friends pretty much, you know, I, I didn't have a, you know, the group of friends I I've had, you know, at that point in my life were real close. And, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, I can't say I was expected anything out of anybody real close to me, mm-hmm. but, you know, you got kind of uh, like the vultures, <clears throat> so to speak, who start kind of circling around once they once they kind of get word of this kind of stuff. And you got to be careful of those kind of people who are kind of all of a sudden find their way into your life. Um, and you kind of realize real quickly why <laughs> why all of a sudden they're they're suddenly in your life and, and uh, trying to be buddy buddy with you. Um, you know, it doesn't take too long, you know, if, as long as you have good people around you mm-hmm. to realize, you know, who's worth keeping in your life and, and who you kind of need to keep on the outside of your circle. So, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I talked to uh, <clears throat> this episode will be airing um, later in the month. I talked to Mark Blunt, who was a former NBA player. And he kind of stated the same thing. Uh, well, he kind of states in a, in a, in a, differently in a way and how his I mean, he he, he necessarily have people like coming you know coming from everywhere like into his life to ask for favors but the people uh who were already in his life you know they felt that since they've been uh, his friend for so long uh you know also his family that uh that you know they were entitled to some of that he would just say like you know he still wanted to maintain his relationships but he wanted to teach them properly like how they can earn it you know as opposed to being entitled to it uh, so yeah, I always think that's interesting. You know, uh, I mean, that's very popular among athletes, but you know, even people like outside of the sports realm, like people who are, let's say, more into uh, the media, people who are like uh, a- actors, people who are like authors, authors like myself. Uh, you know, it- it's the same thing, but probably not as as probably not to the as, at a further. Ex- at, at, how should I say it? It's probably not to the extent as it is with yeah. uh, professional athletes. Uh, so let's talk about uh, your, yeah, you know, your career, man. Uh, it's wow, you know, it's it, it's it's fascinating. Just, uh, 1998, uh, you had 35 homers. You know, man, like you know, you know that that must uh, that must kind of put you kind of. I must give you a sense of kind of validation in a way. You know, let's talk about this experience. What Absolutely. was that like? Uh, yeah, that, that year was unlike any other, you know, it was the first year that I've kind of like putting up big numbers and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I've had those type of years before in the past, but it's always, there's always like this, you know, like, well, can you do it at the pro level? Can you do, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like I've had a big year when I played in the Cape, you know, I've seen that all the time. I will see college students, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you know, for, you know, going for example, let's say basketball, you know, they would drop like, you know, 25 points a game, but then they go to the NBA and they can barely make 10 points. Right. So yeah, de- definitely a different um, level. You know, so it was kind of, it was kind of different in where, you know, one it was on it was, you know, now doing it in a pro season where there's a lot more games and and you know, so your numbers look, you know, a lot higher, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. you know, but coming off our, you know, the first my first two seasons in professional baseball was more about getting used to um, you know, that kind of atmosphere, you know, being getting used to the travel, getting used to playing every single day, being at the ballpark, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon and you're not leaving until midnight. Mm-hmm. pretty much every night, you know, so um, it was more about getting adjusted to the lifestyle. And then that third year, you know, in 98, uh, which is my second full season, but but third third professional season overall, um, you know, things really started to click 
Um, I started getting to, you know, I started getting to like a routine that year of, of what worked for me. Um, and it just started kind of taking off from there. And, and, it, and it was great. You know, and I, I really felt like, all right, you know, everything I've worked for my whole life. Game man, it's so exciting and so invigorating. And, you know, it's like so much suspense. And, uh, you know, it's always it's always a good time. And I also like to play it, uh, too, not not on Xbox or PlayStation 2, but actually or PlayStation 4, but actually playing a sport uh with other people you know I, yeah. I, i'm more of a when it, when it comes to sports typically i'm more of a kinesthetic guy uh so i like to actually if i can't actually play this sport like right then and there i would actually i would prefer to actually be at the uh baseball game or at the yeah. basketball game uh to actually see it so uh that's always uh great if you're just joining us uh we have pete tucci uh peaches peach is a former uh, MLB uh, baseball player. Uh, he was active with the San Diego uh, Padres as well as the Toronto uh, Blue Jays, uh, leading with uh, 35 homers in 1998. Wonderful episode. You can get it when you become a premium radio subscriber. Go to reachingthefinishline.com forward slash buy to get your subscription today. What do you get? You get things like early access to the episodes, commercial free one-hour episodes, mastermind calls with our guests, freebies from our guests, as well as much more. Go to reachingthefinishline.com forward slash buy to get your premium subscription for it's another way for you to start reaching your finish line. Unfortunately, after an injury, uh, he went to business uh, for you. Uh, did you immediately have this idea in mind or did it take a few months or maybe years for it to click? Uh, it actually took a few years. You know, this the kind of idea behind it was almost subconsciously going through my head, mm. um, you know, as I would spend, you know, especially those, those last few parts, you know, those last few kind of years after the injury that I, I wasn't really, you know, like like we said, you know, a little bit earlier in 98, I had that big year. 99 is when the injury happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I missed most of that year with it when I came back in uh, 2000. Um, things were completely different. I didn't have the power I once had. I didn't have the fast speed I once had. So, um, you know, and then by the time 2001 rolled around, I wasn't really an everyday player anymore. I was mm-hmm. spending a lot of time on the bench. So I had a lot of time to kind of sit and reflect and, uh, you know, kind of in all these things were running through my head. And, and one of the things that really kind of weighed heavily on my mind was, was the bat I was using one at the time of the injury. Um, and two, at, at, at that time, um, at that time, Peter, what bat was you using? Were you using a Louisville or what type of bat was it? Uh, I was using a Rawlings. Okay. Um, it's actually Mark McGuire's model in, in 98, if you remember, was yeah. the year Mar- Mark McGuire, you know, and Sammy Sosa were, were kind of going off in that home run race. And, uh, yeah. And after, after <laughs> Very exciting year. 98 season. Yeah, it was after that season, uh, I played in the Arizona Fall League. Mm. And out there, one of our teammates had one of Mark McGuire's bats. And he's like, you got to try it. And it was really different model than anything I've used previously to that. And uh, I said, you know, I just came off a really big year with the bat I was using. And um, he said, he said, just try it. One round of batting practice. Try it. You know, you got to, mm-hmm. you just got to see the way this bat performs. So, um, so I tried it and, and, <laughs> and I took a round of batting practice like I never have before. You know, the ball was just carrying a lot farther than, than it ever did. And, uh, it just, I just really liked the way the ball was jumping off the bat. Now, the one thing I didn't like about it was the handle on the bat mm. and the way I held the bat, um, really kind of dug that knob of the bat into my, into my hand, which, which eventually is what broke that bone. And, and when that bone broke, it, 
snapped the tendons going to my ring and pinky finger. And it was mm. the tendon damage that ultimately altered my career, not, not necessarily the broken, broken bone, but, um, you know, so, so moving forward, like, you know, so that next year I started using that bat all the time because just performance wise, I, I really liked the performance I was getting from it. Um, I see. I see. And so, even though it felt uncomfortable in my hands, mm-hmm. and I kept trying to go back to the company to get them to redo it, but the bat business was a lot different than it was now. You didn't have reps kind of around all the time where you could run into them and say, hey, listen, I really like this model, but I want to change it. Mm-hmm. So we'd kind of go through our equipment manager, and they'd make the request, and, and so we'd get, you know, I'd get, you know, bats sent out to me that were close to what I was asking for, but not exact, you know, so I, I would see. get... You know, they, they may send something to me at the time that was, um, you know, so I would want the exact same model, but just the knob was the only part I want to change. Mm. And they would send out a whole different bat. So mm. it would be close to what I was asking for, so the knob would be close to what I was asking for, but it would change, you know what I mean, the, the barrel was different and everything else was, you know, so it's like, ah, this isn't it. So I, I would just keep going back to the same bat and ultimately end up breaking my hand on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I remember thinking at the time, you know, this can't be that hard to customize you know, I didn't know. I didn't know the first thing about making bats at the time. I didn't know the process. I didn't know what was entailed in it. Mm-hmm. But I do remember thinking it couldn't be that hard to just make the exact same bat that I wanted and just change in like the last two inches of of like the knob. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, it was just all these ideas on how the bats can be made better, how they can be made harder. Um, you know, things we were doing uh, to our bats. You know, for instance, I would order all my bats. And um, I, would, I would order them unfinished so it had no finish on it so that I could take it and, and, and I would bone it with like a, a femur bone from a cow that I would get from a butcher oh. and literally like compress the wood and try to make the wood as hard as possible um, before I even use the bat, and which was something that was kind of routinely done. But no company at the time would ever take the time to go through these processes. You know, the bats are just pretty much cut on a machine and sanded and yeah. painted and sent out the door, you know, so there's nothing being done to compress the wood or make the wood any harder mm-hmm. than its original state. So, um, so this was something I was doing at the time. For sure. Um, and these are all kind of thoughts that were going through my head and, and stuff and, but never really at the time with the intent to start a company to do it, it was more just what could be done better. What, you know, in what ways could the bats be made better? Um, than they're currently being made now. And, and, uh, but it was, you know, again, it was just kind of like this hypothetical situation in my mind at the time that, that right. I really never thought would ever amount to anything. It was, it was never my intention to go into business, uh, you know, owning a bat company at that point. Right. So, uh, so 2002, uh, was that, was that your last year of playing professional baseball? That was my last year playing professional baseball, yeah. So, because um, I typically ask this, uh, Peter, because uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, hopefully it's not yourself, but uh, a lot of athletes, you know, when they're in the NBA, NFL, uh, MLB, uh, they make a lot of money, but unfortunately, they don't manage their money very well. And uh, oftentimes, when they stop playing, uh, you know, they're very lucky to perhaps maybe have a, a year, maybe two, maybe a, between a year to four years of savings and then you know oftentimes you'll see them they'll go ahead and become uh, like espn commentators and uh things like that um you know what was it like for you you know as as a professional baseball player was you was you kind of more fiscally responsible uh, with your finances or did, did you find yourself having to figure out uh you know i have to do something quick uh before you kind of you know you kind of go into red 
kind of both. You know, I, I was never a big enough name to make. You know, I made a decent signing bonus when I signed in '96 in the first round, mm-hmm. but other than that, I never really, you know, got to the big leagues to the point where I signed a big contract or, mm-hmm. you know, so I never made, you know, huge money in the game of baseball. You know, um, so by the time I was out of it. You know, I was, you know, I, I was married now. I had a kid mm-hmm. and um, not from being, you know, kind of financially irresponsible, but more for the just the fact of, you know, just never really making it big. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to start making money right away. You know, I, I didn't see. have really didn't have the time to go back to school to, uh, you know, finish my degree and kind of enter the workforce. Let's talk about that. You know, I'm very interested because there, there are a lot of e- baseball equipment companies out there, you know, but the question is that everyone wants to know is like necessarily, you know, what makes yours different than all the others? Um, basically, you know, it, it really comes down to, to the passion that you just spoke about, you mm-hmm. know, the passion I have behind our product and what we do do, you know, differently. Uh, a couple of things that make our bats different. Um, one is we're one of, a few bat companies who only use split wood in order to make our bats. Mm-hmm. Um, and the so, reason so, being so, is... So let's talk about that. What's the difference between, yep. for, for, for people who are like not very keen on this, what's the difference between split wood and then the regular type? So split wood and cut wood, you know, so most companies use cut wood mm-hmm. uh, in order to make their bats. So the logs are harvested, you know, from the trees and and are uh, cut, you know, with these large saws at these, at these big lumber mills mm-hmm. um, into pieces that would... <clears throat> eventually be kiln dried and then turned into the dowels that we end up making our bats out of. Mm. Uh, when you cut a piece of wood, you don't know how that grain is entering the saw, you know, so a grain, you know, that, that tree, that log could enter the saw at a slight angle, making that grain going up and down the bat, you know, kind of at an angle, even though you can't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> uh, on, on vice versa, that, tr- that grain in the tree might grow at a slight angle. And mm-hmm. now you cut that piece of wood perfectly straight, but now it's in that it's in that bat at a slight angle. Um, when you split the wood, much as like you're splitting firewood, the grain split it can only split on one. It's predetermined to split on on a certain grain. When you split the wood, only the straight pieces go on to be made into the billets that are then made into our bats. Mm-hmm. And you're guaranteed to have a straight grain in all your in all your bats because all the wood is hand split before it even gets made into one of our bats. Um, so, so one that, that, that's a, that's a huge quality standard like on, on our end that, that kind of puts us above most of the back company. Peter, as we come to a close, if people want to follow you or get in contact with you, how would they do that? Uh, they can follow us on Twitter. We're at Tucci lumber bats, uh, same handle on Instagram. Um, you can like our Facebook page, find us on the web. Uh, it's Tucci limited.com call us mm-hmm. our phone number is 888-810-BATS which is 2287 mm-hmm. um you know so so any of those above mentioned feel free to reach out and, and we'll we'll gladly answer any questions anybody has great pete thank you for being our guest cal i really appreciate it, buddy thank you for listening just another great episode by Callan diggs best-selling author and career strategist has seen a fast company and ink magazine if you're not on an email list, you're missing out. Go to reachingthefinishline.com and subscribe to get all the exclusives.